Thank you, James, very, very much. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to those who are online as well. Hopefully, we'll be able to stay with you the entire time this time. We won't have a, I hope we don't have another power outage like we did last time. But uh, in any case, if we do, glad that you're there for whatever portion of this you uh, are able to take part in. Welcome again. Uh, you know, with all of the, the really nasty roads out there, uh, owe me a little faith. I thought, well, it might be down a little bit today. I just, uh, but uh, it is not. There's a rejoicing in my heart that uh, uh, you all desire to be in the company of the Lord and His people, and hearing in the hearing of His word, that you uh, persevere through through the weather to be here today. So welcome and God bless you. Uh, turn with me once again to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. And once again, we're going to begin reading at verse 18 and, run, and uh, read on down through verse 23 as we are striving to uh, examine with some degree of depth uh, this whole uh, theological idea, doctrine, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's holy word. Again, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not uh, fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Lord adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please do be seated. So we began taking a look at this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us a little more uh, a little uh, last Sunday and focused on the aspect of the last two words of that phrase the with us portion uh, specifically looking at the Lord Jesus Christ with us as man being fully man and we looked at various aspects of humanity that are taught to us in the scriptures and uh, noting that there were some ancient heresies, and there are some even around today in this area, but uh, some ancient heresies that wanted to deny that Jesus was actually man, which uh, may seem strange to us, but I think much of that was motivated by the desire not to corrupt God somehow by linking him to man. And so, you know, trying, and trying to wrap the whole idea around, okay, fully God and fully man, it's, it's impossible for us to understand that. It's 
quite readily possible for us to be able to understand that it's taught, but to grasp the whole of it is something that is truly beyond us. But nonetheless, it is very clear that the scriptures make it absolutely plain that Jesus was fully man. And of course, why is that so important? If he's not fully man, if he cannot represent mankind in his death. Bottom line. So God in his plan uh, <coughs> laid things out so that the eternal God-man, fully God and fully man, would be able to represent humanity and, on the cross and pay our debt, pay the penalty of our sin so that as we put our faith in him, in our great high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and take upon himself our infirmities and indeed take upon himself our sins as he hung on the cross, our sins can be paid for by our second Adam, our federal head, and we must be hidden in him. But we also noted, as we wrapped up last time, that if he was only man, that's no matter how great a man he was, no matter how perfect a man he was, that's not sufficient. He had to also be fully God. Because man, as, as we all know, we're limited. We're limited in scope. We're limited in influence. We're limited, limited in every way. So in order for this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to truly reach to all of his people, he had to be divine as well. So today we're going to be looking at the, the, the third word in this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, or the second word uh, in this phrase, God who is with us. Jesus is truly, fully God. Now, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, we read these words. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhood, uh, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. We talked about those three words last time as well. Um, the... Uh, Deity did not change into manhood, nor did manhood change into deity. No conversion. Uh, no uh, composition. Uh, that uh, that uh, God didn't uh, take on, basically become one person by taking some things from God and some things from man and making this sort of unique hodgepodge being. Uh, there's none of that. Fully and completely God, fully and completely man. And without confusion, being inseparably linked together in one person. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now the writers of the confession uh, are writing in a stream 
of history that uh, even in, even during the time of the Reformation, uh, there was there were heresies then about the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were very aware of the ancient heresies that there had been because uh, some were being carried on even to uh, the, that present day. Some of those early heresies in the second century, you had one that was called adoptionism. And that was the thought that uh, Jesus uh, was not the Son of God from all eternity, but rather at some point, and no, nothing specified, but at some point in the past, he had been adopted by God, whatever that means. But there was a denial of his Son of God, from, of being the Son of God from eternity, the eternal Son of God. Another one was a, a big long word, uh, uh, cilanthropism. I had to think about that, I get it across. Also the second century, this one is even, if it could be worse than the other, this is even worse. Um, it just stated that he was, Jesus was merely human, that he never became God. He did not exist prior to death. It was a complete denial of his eternal aspect and character and existence. One that is more familiar probably to you, uh, at least the, the name it would be more uh, um, familiar to you, and that is the heresy that was espoused by Arius, it's also known as Arianism. It has as its as its stepchildren, or maybe not stepchildren, but anyway, as its descendants, uh, such modern cults as Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, Mormon Church, and so on. Uh, Arius denied that Jesus was fully human, insisting that he was created. And so, uh, in an answer to to Arius. Church father um, Athanasius, anybody heard of him? Uh, he wrote what is now known as the Athanasian Creed. We would, we, I've thought about incorporating that in our normal cycle of our reading of the various ancient creeds, but it's really quite long. So I've decided we, not to do it, but I highly recommend that you do that. Both the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are dealing with this issue that Jesus is fully divine in answer to heretics like Arius, who denied that he was. So again, in order for the plan of salvation to actually be effective for us, it has to, be, it has to have an element of the eternal in it. Otherwise, even if Jesus... If Jesus was not divine, even if he had been able to somehow uh, atone for the sins of somebody else, it would only apply in the, the, the moment he died for the people that were there, if that was even possible, which since he uh, uh, was a perfect man, okay, perhaps. But honestly, apart from his being divine, um, it really had no, would have had no impact whatsoever, certainly not upon, upon us or upon any of those that had lived before. We often think of Jesus saving those after his crucifixion, but do you recognize that because he is the eternal Son of God, time's really not a factor. He is the foundation of redemption for every soul from Adam till he comes again. 
both before and after his crucifixion and resurrection. So what do the scriptures say about the Lord Jesus Christ as God? Well, uh, there's a lot, but uh, we'll focus in on just a few things. First of all, please note that Jesus is put forward to us in the scriptures as God in power. He is stated to be the creator of the world. An example of this is Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And you have uh, some similar terminology in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews as well. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who created the world and who holds all things together by the power of his word. And it's specifically pointed, the writer of Hebrews is specifically looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, when he makes those statements. He is the creator of the world. He was there at the beginning and even before the beginning of our world. Secondly, he demonstrates his power as God through performing miracles. And and he makes several statements like this uh, throughout the uh, the Gospels during his earthly ministry. But a, a classic example of it would be John chapter 14 and verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Basically, the idea is if, if you're not going to, you know, listen to what I have to say to you, at least pay attention. Uh, and and uh, we also know that there were, uh, there were some, besides the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders at the time, that uh, even would remind the Jewish leaders, nobody could do this stuff unless, you know, God's involved here. And he over and over and over again did the things that not only were they marvelous things to be doing, healing people, providing things for people, and all of that, raising from the dead, but these are things that were were, uh, foretold of the Messiah, of the Son of God in the Old Testament as well. The Jews should have recognized the signs, but the darkness of their hearts they, Jesus did not fit their thought of what the Messiah should be, of what the Son of God should be. How could this, this person of questionable descent, the son of a carpenter, this is not a king, this is not the Messiah, this is not the God of all, he- of all the heavens. Um, we need something more grand and glorious before we're willing to give up our place and power. I sometimes wonder if even if Jesus had come in more glory, would the Jews have bowed even then? And I suspect that they would not. <coughs> For one thing, just, just the perversity of human nature. We read in the book of Revelation, right, that when Jesus is revealed in all of his power and glory, do all the nations just suddenly go, oh, great, isn't this wonderful? What do they do? They amass themselves to fight against him. So uh, the Jews, they didn't want to pay attention to the miracles, and yet 
we can see in the scriptures that the miracles are there to help people that are seeking out their king to be able to identify him, to know that he truly is God because he's able to do these things. Uh, a, a third aspect of the power of God that's revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ is perhaps an obvious one, and that is that he conquered death. You know, in Matthew 28, what do the angels say to the disciples when they come to the tomb? You know, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. Jesus earlier had said, you know, no one can take my life from me. I'm laying it down, and I have this command of the Father to take up my life again. In Romans 14, Paul points out that it is to, for this purpose that Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. Our Lord was, was not raised by anyone else. Now, he raised others. Prophets had raised others before him in the old, during the time of the Old Testament. Um, the Apostle Paul would follow suit um, later on with folks like uh, Eutychus. Um, but Jesus didn't need somebody to come along and raise him up. He had the power in and of himself, even in his death because of his dual nature, fully God, fully man. He had the power to take up his life again, and he did so. This is, this is our Savior. The one who is and must be fully God. But it doesn't just start, uh, stop, the Bible doesn't just stop with making assertions about uh, his power and his deeds. There's also uh, characteristics of God, some that we share in and others that are unique to him, that point up that are pointed up to us as evidence of his deity so in his attributes we may see something of the divine in the lord jesus christ in the westminster larger catechism question 11 asks how does it appear that the son and the holy ghost are god equal with the father the scriptures manifest the answer is that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. And what are some of those attributes? Uh, one is found in 1 John 5.20, where we read, The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true true in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is true. Now think about that for a minute. You and I can speak truthfully about in and of ourselves what we are, all of us, even the most saintly among us at one time or another because of the struggle we have with our fallen natures, even in their redeemed state, what we appear to be on the outside is not what we are on the inside. Is that a fair statement? 
Now, for some of us, the disparity between appearance and reality may be greater uh, than for others. At some point, there's a threshold where we, we uh, cross over and say, well, we are, or that person is a hypocrite. But I think we all recognize that, there's a, that underneath that line, and it may be a bit of a movable line, where, where we are, um, we may not be prepared to, to label ourselves as a hypocrite. And yet, nonetheless, this, the, I, I don't think any of us would really want to have the deepest recesses of our hearts and doubts and fears and struggles with sin revealed to the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, as God, is true, through and through. There's no hole, there's no recess, there's no corner, there's no crack where sin can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is absolutely true. And because of that, his sacrifice is acceptable in the sight of God and no other for our redemption. He is the one who is true. That's why we must be in him, hidden in him as our representative, the divine Lord Jesus Christ, who is true. Along with that is the idea of his holiness. In Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 30, um, this is after Peter and John have been beaten and uh, then they're released and they go back to uh, rejoice and worship with the church. And uh, there's a, the prayer that comes out of that meeting is an interesting one. Beginning at verse 24, uh, after they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And in Acts 4, 24, it says, and when they heard it, the disciples, that is, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had destined to take place. We typically think of holiness as a matter of purity and righteousness, and certainly those things are, are manifestations of someone who is holy unto the Lord. But the focus here is that in the midst of the raging of, of humanity against her creator, God sent his son, to accomplish a particular purpose, his holy servant who is set apart unto that service of redeeming those whom God had chosen from before the foundation of the earth to do whatever had been predestined to take place before Jesus set out to do that and accomplished it. He was set apart unto that service in a unique way that no one else could do. He truly is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one who can accomplish 
our redemption because he is holy. Along with this um, perhaps even springing out of the fact that he is absolutely true and divine, that he is utterly holy, springs authority. And it's the very authority of the Godhead. In, this was foretold in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, a familiar verse, I think, probably to most of you. Uh, often gets quoted this time of year, and it certainly gets sung a lot, speaking of the of the Handel's Messiah that was mentioned earlier. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He has all the authority of the Father because he's one with the Father. He has all of the, the governance of the world upon his shoulders, and he will bring all things to a successful conclusion of God's plans for this world and for eternity. Only God can have that kind of authority. Do you recall you know, during the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, numerous times when he would perform some wonder, that reaction that, that again, it happens fairly often. Who is this? That even the, the demons obey him. That the, the winds obey him. That the seas obey him. And fear would enter the hearts of those who witnessed these things because they recognized the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over creation and the souls of men and even the demonic world. This is our authoritative king. This is our authoritative God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, we read of another uh, attribute that is uh, particular to God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're speaking here of his eternal nature. Now, we're... We have eternity stretching ahead of us, but we are not eternal beings. Uh, an eternal being has no beginning or end. We have a beginning. We won't have an end if we're within Christ. We'll live with him for eternity, future. But Jesus Christ existed in eternity past. Remember that one, that philanthropism uh, uh, heresy of the second century that wanted to say that Jesus didn't exist prior to his his birth. That is absolutely a denial that he's God himself. You can't have it both ways. Of course, they were determined that he never did become God and he's only man. Uh, what, I guess my, 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 if somebody came up and said that to me, I guess I would say, well, then why do you even talk about it? So what? Who cares? If that's true, why do you want to say you're in the Christian realm. Uh, go be something else. Uh, but anyway, people like labels. Uh, but then they want labels on their own terms. And that was what they were doing. But he's the eternal son of God. The scriptures make that very clear. He's also God in his knowledge. I, and this is one of those communicable attributes. The Lord 
uh, gives us the ability to know and the ability to reason, the ability to grasp what's going on around us. But there's a point at which our knowledge ends. Uh, in Jesus' case, while he voluntarily, voluntarily laid aside some of his glories when he became man, the glories of the Godhead, he Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 2, uh, it wasn't that he laid aside Godhead, he laid aside some of the practice of it and, and, and grew as a young person and as a man and learned, and we talked about all of that last time. And yet, even in that case, uh, we read something like this in John chapter 2, that people were wanting him to be king, they were wanting to elevate him because of the great things that he was doing, and Jesus said, uh, or the, the John writes uh, regarding him, that Jesus did not commit, commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So the Lord Jesus retained uh, a knowledge of what was going on that is beyond what mere man could do. Of course, you think about all the interactions he had with the Pharisees, uh, some more hostile than others, and he recognized what was in their hearts, knowing what was going on in their rumblings and their mutterings and all of that, he would respond in a way that we would be unable to because we wouldn't know what people were thinking. Uh, we wouldn't be able to anticipate what should be said. But the Lord Jesus was not suffering from that limitation. He was God in his knowledge. He was also God in his mercy and in the way that he expressed his mercy, which got him into a lot of hot water with the the Pharisees who were really irritated every time Jesus would say, well, your sins are forgiven you. Um, who is this that forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. Well, they got that right. Only God can forgive sins. They just weren't willing to attribute that to the Lord Jesus. But in Mark chapter one, we read, Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Rather say, Lord, if you're willing, um, will you heal me? Uh, will you cleanse me? And he, he says, I am willing, be cleansed. And over and over through his ministry, we read, he had, was moved with compassion upon people. Even the rich young ruler who was yeah, ostensibly on the surface, seemed to be um, reasonable and, and uh, even seemed to be to a degree, maybe not as humble as he could have been, but he wasn't arrogantly, I've done, you know, I don't need anything, you know, I've got everything. But when he came and asked, Lord, what do I do? And Jesus starts going through some of the Ten Commandments and says, do this, do this, do this. And the young man says, what? Well, I've done all those things from my youth. And I, and I don't, Jesus doesn't dispute that the young man had done all those things. But Jesus, looking on his heart, it says that he was moved with compassion upon him. He says, okay, go sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, then follow me. And the young man went away sorrowing because he had great riches. Jesus put his finger right, again, with, with his divine knowledge, right on the exact idol that that young man had, which was his wealth and his position. He had another God. But Jesus was moved with compassion upon him, even though... He knew that that young man was going to walk away. 
was still moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion upon the multitudes who were like sheep without a shepherd, even though knowing that those multitudes were going to turn on him and send him to the cross. Jesus had mercy that only God can show. You know, we, we can show mercy, and we should, when others offend us, when others move against us, whether on purpose or, or by accident, nonetheless, offenses take place. And we can show mercy, but, oh, it's hard for us sometimes, isn't it? Oh, we want our pound of flesh. But not so the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That takes God to do. <coughs> Just, that's the next one, the last one in this section that we'll look at. We could look at more. But in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ is just and he is the justifier of those who seek him. He is the, the one who is going to be the judge of all the earth. And he's not arbitrary. He doesn't operate contrary to his law or contrary to his character. He is absolutely just. Now, um, a lot of parents here today with your children beside you. And uh, when you, particularly if you have more than one, So this is a thing that some people have since we're at Christmas time here. It's, we start thinking about gifts for our children. Um, some people uh, asking for a friend. <laughs> Try to be really careful about, okay, how many presents did we get each kid? Is it equal? Are we, are we being just and fair in the way that we, we demonstrate our love so that we don't have, we're not demonstrating that we've got favorites or anything like that, uh, but we, we try to make everything equal. Sometimes that can be a challenge. Let's take it in, to a different step. How about in discipline? A little less enjoyable task. To be consistent as a parent in disciplining your children where you're really hard the first time uh, the first time one of your children does something and then after that you go you start to think and second guess yourself did I do the right thing there was that sufficient was it not was it too much okay and then the next child does something similar and then you you have to say okay am I going to have the same response or the circumstance is different how am I going to be just in all of this and sometimes we don't do that very well sometimes we make mistakes Sometimes we do better than others. But it's a struggle for us to, do, to be fair, to be just, and to not take into account things that shouldn't shake uh, and shape our, our decision regarding a particular child. But they do. The Lord is not subject to those verities because he knows uh, those uh, variances of, 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 of of, of thought and circumstances and all of that because he knows us perfectly he knows exactly what should be done and he does it 
With the Lord Jesus Christ, the punishment always fits the crime. It's never too excessive and it's never too lenient. The Lord knows exactly what we need and He judges us and guides us and disciplines us and, and works to conform us to His image without being arbitrary, without being cruel, without leaving things undone. And it's because He's God. That's why He is fit to be the judge of the living and the dead at His, at his appearing. So we've looked at the Lord Jesus Christ as God in His power. We've looked at Him in His character and the attributes that He, that he uh, makes clear in His life and deeds and words. Finally, we'll look at this thought of the fact that He is God because He is in union or He is one with the Father. As he himself declared in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. For uh, those kinds of statements, the Jews wanted to kill him. They would take up stones and threaten to fling them at him. And he would have to uh, make his way uh, out of the area when those things took place. They didn't want to hear that. They knew exactly what he was saying. Now, it's interesting that those that are in the her heretics, like we've talked about before, and even modern-day heretics, would, would like to somehow, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's like there's this disconnect. When you look at the Scriptures, Jesus makes his, his declarations about Godhead and deity, and the Jews know exactly what he's saying. If Jesus had said, um, even I am like God, they wouldn't have objected to the same degree. I mean, in the Psalms, you have, you have David ascribing to himself in the Psalms certain uh, God-like qualities because of his position as king. He wasn't declaring himself to be God, but he was, he was uh, operating under that uh, understanding of the king as a sovereign over his people and acting in that stead. If Jesus had made those kind of statements, they still may have objected to, that he's the one who said he was the king. I mean, they clearly did that. They didn't like that. But their desire to put him to death was based upon their perception of himself as blaspheming because he... As they said, you make yourself equal with God. They knew exactly what he was claiming. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus uh, numerous times speaks of himself as being one with the Father and praying that the disciples would be one even as the Father and the Son were one. That closely knit together in their walk and their service. But notes that he was sent by the Father to accomplish certain things and to say certain things. And that's repeated numerous times in John 17. But let's take a, a look at John 8 uh, just as a, uh, to supplement that thought. In John 8 and verse uh, 42, 
the, uh, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being uh, born in immorality, and they're claiming that they are, they are the children of Abraham. And um, in verse uh, 37, Jesus even acknowledges that physically that's true. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So Jesus shifts it from a physical parenthood to a spiritual one. And they were like, well, you know, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, well, if that were true, you would do the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And we read in verse 41, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And of course, when he would then go on to say that uh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, was glad. Uh, and then he declared himself as uh, I and the father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. That's when they picked up stones and wanted to, to kill him right there. But Jesus says, no, I'm sent from God. The Messiah is one who was foretold that would be sent from the Godhead to his people to redeem them from their sins. And Jesus made that declaration and demonstrated throughout his earthly ministry that these things were so. In John chapter 9, we read uh, another passage. Now, in the ESV, uh, this, uh, the phrase, last time we talked about the, the Son of Man and talked about that as it related to the, the, the one, the Messiah who was fully man, who would stand this title of the one whom God had sent to represent uh, man before God. In John chapter 9, uh, we see this phrase again uh, in the ESV, verse 35, Jesus uh, finds a man who had been born blind um, after he'd been cast out by the Pharisees when, when the guy had the cheek to say to the Pharisees, uh, do you also want to believe in him? Uh, you know, if God, uh, how could this, how could he, uh, how could he heal somebody who's born blind unless he truly was God? And they, they chucked him out because they didn't want to hear it. When Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Now some of manuscripts have the son of God there. And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man Praise God said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This, this title of the Son of God is one that is uh, attributed to Christ as well. He claimed this title. Many others applied it to him. Uh, the uh, uh, Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 says, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Again, that resurrection demonstrating his deity. That title declares that the Lord Jesus is eternally begotten of God and one with the Father. 
Now, the word begotten is one of those words that, it's a, it's, it's a theological term, it's a technical term. And it's unfortunate that uh, in that English translation of it, uh, and it's not a bad translation of the Greek word, um, but the Greek word, but it brings with it some baggage, because when we hear begotten, we immediately think uh, the normal process of birth and the, the beginnings of our hearts uh, and lives and everything getting started and going. And it suggests to us that there's a point of beginning, which, of course, when it comes to Lord Jesus Christ can be confusing because he's eternal. So what is that? We look at the Greek term, and it actually speaks of being unique, and particularly uniquely related to the Father. To say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God is that He is the only one who is uniquely related to the Father as He is. That He is the only one who shares the same nature as the Father. The title, the Son of God, is not one of a subservient lesser being, a created being, but of one who is God. The phrase really is an accommodation by saying son. Uh, it's an accommodation to our understanding. Since the father-son relationship is, I think, is as close a parallel as we'll find in our existence to the relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. That phrase, the Son of God, encompasses all that we rest in and must rest in for our salvation. The greatness of God's love, his personal attention to our situation, the uniqueness of our divine Savior in his uh, glory uh, and in the worship that is due to him. That he rightly claimed that title is evidenced by his power to save himself, to have life in and of himself, to reveal and glorify the Father, and by save himself, I mean from death, to redeem men from sin and death, to raise the dead and judge the living. He is both Lord and Christ, and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Let us praise our God for this marvelous Savior, fully God and fully man. And finally, just to kind of cap things off in this section, in Hebrews 1, uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 in verses 8 and 9. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is called God by God. And that should be uh, good enough for us. So our Lord is fully divine. But it's important as we wrap up this this morning that we do not view our Savior as the sum of two parts. Again, back to that composition idea. This was the error of the Nestorian heresy, 
of the fourth century and on into the fifth century, where the Nestorians insisted that Jesus, they acknowledged he was fully God and they acknowledged he was fully man, but they said he was two persons. No, he's one person. We have a triune God who is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three, uh, three uh, persons and one God. One God. Jesus is one Jesus, one, one Son of God. He's not, he's not two beings, he's one. But fully God in every respect and fully man. This is uh, a mystery that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us. And only the Holy Spirit can convince you of. The divine and the human are not running parallel to each other. They're united as one. As hard as that is to understand, as impossible as it is to grasp that and understand how that works, the fact that it is taught clearly in the Scriptures cannot be denied, at least not with any integrity. It's upon this truth that our faith rests For Christ was given another name also. And that's the name that we're going to look at, God willing, next week. The first word in our phrase, Emmanuel. So far we've talked about God's, our, our, the Lord Jesus Christ's um, uh, characteristics, if you will. Uh, what he is, if I can put it that way. Emmanuel speaks to who he is and why he is. And God willing, we will take a look at that next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have revealed these mysteries to us who are our babes in our understanding. You've hidden these mysteries from so many who are determined to walk in their sins. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek you out, knowing that as we do so, you have promised that we shall find you by your grace. Lord, pour out your spirit upon us afresh so that we may grasp the reality of these things and rejoice in their truth. And Lord, help us to be clear in our declaration of these things to those around us. This truly, this fact of the full deity of Jesus Christ secures for eternity the labors of, that were required of Christ as man representing us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to rejoice during this time and every time of the year. When we think about you sending a Savior, Lord, let us not trust in anything or anyone else but him alone who is our Emmanuel. For Jesus, by his work alone, saves his people from their sins. We pray these things in his precious name.